Hi everyone, this is Dan, and welcome to the Rapid Boards Review Podcast. This is episode 33 of the podcast. In this episode, we go over a framework to understand all the high-yield causes of facial weakness. If you see facial weakness in a question stem, this episode will allow you to figure out what the cause is and to get the question correct on your step one examination. This is not a question and answer episode, but it'll set the stage for future question and answer episodes on this topic. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, I really hope you find this episode useful. Okay, so when you're talking about facial weakness, um, what you have to consider is what gives the face the ability to move in the first place. And the answer to that is cranial nerve 7, otherwise known as the facial nerve. So all the problems with facial weakness um, either have something to do with the origin or all the way down to the assertion of cranial nerve 7. So the classic way to differentiate this and the way that would be most useful for step 1 would be differentiating between a peripheral and central cranial nerve 7 lesion. Um, So let's look at the whole uh, kind of pathway of how you can create motor movements in the face, and then we could look at where those problems might be, and then we could define what a peripheral lesion would be that you would most likely see on step one. So basically, all facial movements start off in the facial area of the motor cortex. Now, very high yield, the motor cortex is also called the precentral gyrus. And this is because if you take a look at the brain, and you can identify the central sulcus, And just, you know, from a gross anatomy perspective, I would definitely look up an image of this because I have seen step one questions where they just have a gross anatomy picture of the brain and they can actually point to different areas. And one of the areas they could point to is the motor cortex. And the way that you could really find the motor cortex is by identifying the central sulcus and looking directly anterior to that. So if you look directly anterior to the central sulcus, this is where the motor cortex is, and because it's in front of or anterior to the central sulcus, it's called the precentral gyrus. And also very important, the central sulcus is what divides the frontal lobe from the parietal lobe. So you can imagine that behind the central sulcus or posterior to the central sulcus, this is called the postcentral gyrus. And this is also known as the somatosensory cortex. So again, if you take a look of a gross anatomy picture of the brain, you have the central sulcus anterior to the central sulcus, that's the precentral gyrus, also known as the motor cortex. That's where all motor um, kind of thoughts stem from. And then posterior to the central sulcus, that is called the postcentral gyrus, and this is the somatosensory cortex. This is where all sensation, uh, somatosensation stems from. Okay, so basically we're starting in the precentral gyrus or the motor cortex, and then the nerves, they'll start up there, and then they'll descend and then they'll descend until they hit the facial nucleus. Now, the facial nucleus is in the pons, and if you remember back to when you're studying brainstem lesions, I would highly recommend you learning the rule of fours. And if you remember the rule of fours, you would recognize that if you think of your nuclei, nuclei one, two, three, and four, and then the next grouping of four is five, six, seven, and eight, and that second grouping, five, six, seven, and eight, includes seven, which is the facial nucleus, and that's how you could know it is in the pons. Um, Now, as the fibers come down to the facial nucleus, they split. Some of them stay ipsilateral, and some of them go contralateral. And the key thing for understanding this is that the facial nucleus has an upper division and a lower division. The upper division is um, uh, innervates the forehead and the eye, and the key here is wrinkling of the forehead. So if you could wrinkle the forehead, those are motor fibers extending from the upper portion of the facial nucleus. And the lower portion controls the mid-face and the lower face. And the high-yield thing for the mid-face would be flaring the nostrils, 
the high yield thing for the lower face would be smiling. Okay, so let's just take a look at this again. We're starting at the precentral gyrus, also known as the motor cortex. The fibers descend and go to the facial nucleus, which is in the pons. And remember, there's an upper and lower part of the facial nucleus. Now, this is the only confusing part, but if you can remember this, it'll help you remember all the things having to do with peripheral versus central facial weakness. So, as the fibers descend from the premotor cortex, or, or, or from the motor cortex, um, they cross to the contralateral side. And when they cross to the contralateral side, they innervate the upper and lower facial nucleus. Some of the fibers stay on the ipsilateral side. And the ones that stay on the ipsilateral side only innervate the upper facial nucleus. So in summary, what you could see here is that the upper facial nucleus is innervated by both sides, ipsilateral and contralateral, whereas the lower facial nucleus is only innervated by the contralateral side. So now we're in the facial nucleus, and the next step is actually getting to the motor endplates of the face. And all of these innervations are ipsilateral. So the key here is to know where things cross over. You start off in the cortex, you go to the facial nucleus. You stay ipsilateral to the upper facial nucleus, you go contralateral to the upper and lower facial nucleus. In other words, the upper facial nucleus gets dual innervation. The lower facial nucleus gets single innervation from the contralateral side. So when you're looking at lesions, if you have a lesion to the upper motor neuron, that would be cortex to facial nucleus, this is called a central lesion. And in this case, the upper facial nucleus would get spared, and the lower facial nucleus would be affected. This is because the upper nucleus is still getting innervation from the other side. Now, if you have a lesion to the lower motor neuron, this would be called a peripheral lesion. And in other words, this would be from the facial nucleus to the muscle motor endplates. The upper facial nucleus would be affected, and the lower facial nucleus would be affected. And that is really the key way you could differentiate between a central or an upper motor neuron lesion and a peripheral or a lower motor neuron region. If the, if the upper facial nucleus is spared, in other words, if you could still wrinkle the forehead, you know that it must be an upper motor neuron lesion. So that being said, let's just take a dive into all the most common types of facial weakness that you'll see in step one. Now the first one is called Bell's palsy. This is the most common cause of peripheral facial palsy. And you remember, when I say peripheral facial palsy, what this means is that it is a problem to the lower motor neuron, that is the facial nucleus to the muscle motor endplates. So you will get problems with both upper and lower mo uh, facial motor nucleus, meaning you cannot wrinkle the forehead, you cannot shut the eye, you cannot flare the nostrils, and you cannot smile. So Bell's palsy, most common cause of peripheral facial palsy. Classically, it is unilateral, and it is acute onset. And high yield here, is it associated with a herpes simplex virus reactivation? Now, the treatment is corticosteroids, and sometimes you could add acyclovir. Most patients get better over time. And as I mentioned before, this is a peripheral facial palsy. So it affects both the upper and lower motor nucleus, and you get all the symptoms on one side of the face. Other symptoms that do show up but are very high yield because they test in anatomy understanding. You get dry eyes and corneal ulceration. This is because you cannot shut the eye. And if you cannot shut the eye, your eyes are going to dry out from the atmospheric pressure. And that drying out leads to corneal ulceration. Other symptom number two, you get hyperacousis. And what this is, is basically like your ears are hearing noises way louder than they should. 
And this is because the stapedius muscle in the ear actually is able to kind of tune down noise or tune up noise into ways that your brain would interpret as normal. And the stapedius muscle is actually also innervated by cranial nerve 7. So if you have a cranial nerve 7 palsy, the stapedius muscle cannot function properly, so you hear sounds in your ear way louder than you should. The third high-yield understanding is you get loss of taste to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. Now, the anterior two-thirds of the tongue is uh, actually innervated by cranial nerve 7, and cranial nerve 7 thus allows you to taste on the anterior two-thirds of your tongue. And the anterior two-thirds is actually a very high-yield anatomic distinction, because what I would recommend to you is go to the first aid page that actually shows you the innervation of the tongue, what you'll recognize is the tongue is actually highly complexly innervated, and it is the anterior two-thirds that are innervated by cranial nerve 7. Okay, so those are all the high yield on Bell's palsy. That is most likely the one that you'll see on your step exam because it's the most common type of peripheral facial palsy. That being said, let's dive into some other types. So Lyme disease, that's number two, Lyme disease. This classically is a bilateral Bell's palsy. And you remember, Bell's palsy is a peripheral cranial nerve 7 lesion. So it's a bilateral peripheral cranial nerve 7 lesion. It turns out this only happens in about 8% of cases of Lyme disease. And really high yield, this is caused, uh, caused by Borrelia burgdorferi, which is a spirochete bacteria. So although Borrelia burgdorferi sounds like a really weird organism, it's still a bacteria. And very high yield is that it's spirochete or spiral and it's transmitted by the Ixodes tick, also known as the deer tick. So it's transmitted by the Ixodes deer tick, caused by the bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi, which is a spirochete bacteria. And also high yield on step one, you could be asked a second order question. The question could be about Lyme disease, but it could say what are other things that are transmitted by the same vector of Lyme disease? So the vector being the Ixodes deer tick. The other two things are anaplasmosis and babesiosis. So in summary, we have the Ixodes tick, also known as the deer tick. It has three diseases associated with it, Borrelia burgdorferi, which is Lyme, anaplasmosis, and babesiosis. And I don't know why this helped me, but I remember this as BAB, B-A-B, because -B, I watched a lot of Boards and Beyond when I was studying for step one, and for some reason I just associated the B-A-B with the Ixodes deer tick. Now, uh, there's three stages classically to Lyme disease, and these do get tested. Number one, stage one, you get the bullseye lesion, which is called erythema migrans, and you also get flu-like symptoms, which would be like fever and chill, some nausea. Stage two, you get carditis. This can manifest as AV block. You get the bilateral facial nerve palsy, which is what we described here, and you also get migratory uh, myalgias and arthritis. And stage three, which is the very late stage of Lyme disease, you get encephalopathy and chronic arthritis. Now, the treatment for Lyme disease is very high yield, and it is tested. Doxycycline is first line, but if you have severe infections, and severe would be like a CNS infection, like encephalopathy, or heart block, like the carditis, then you can give ceftriaxone. But if you are pregnant, you cannot give doxycycline. So the correct treatment here is amoxicillin. So, just going back here, if you have a bilateral Bell's palsy, the high yield here to think about would be Lyme disease. And remember, the Ixodes tick is the thing that spreads Lyme disease, and the Ixodes tick carries Borrelia burgdorferi, anaplasmosis, and babesiosis. And while we're on the topic, there are some other really high yield ticks that you need to know for step one. The first one is the dermacentaur tick, also known as the dog tick. And this carries two really important diseases. The first one being Rickettsia rickettsii, and Franciella. The second high yield tick, the Lone Star tick. This, carry, uh, this carries Ehrlichia and causes Ehrlichiosis. 
So there's really three big ticks that you need to know for step one. The dermacenter tick, also known as the dog tick, it carries rickettsia and francella. Um, and remember, rickettsia causes that Rocky Mountain spotted fever. The second one is a lone star tick. It carries ehrlichiosis. And the third one is the ixodes tick, and that carries BAB, or B-A-B. Borrelia burgdorferi, which causes Lyme, anaplasmosis, and babesiosis. So that's Lyme disease. Now, Lyme disease is probably the most common cause of a bilateral Bell's palsy, but there's three other high-yield causes that I have seen showing up on test questions. That would be sarcoidosis, HIV, and Miller-Fisher syndrome. So sarcoidosis, uh, I know this comes up a lot, um, but I definitely would study like the high-yield things associated with sarcoidosis because you could see this in a question stem. HIV could be in someone that um, has uh, like immunocompromised, for example. And Miller-Fisher syndrome is the one that I didn't know when I started studying for step one, but it's a variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome, and it does show up increasingly on step one. So as I mentioned, it's a subset of Guillain-Barre syndrome. And remember, Guillain-Barre syndrome can also be described on a test as acute demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy, or AIDP. I'll say that one more time. So Miller-Fisher syndrome is a subset of Guillain-Barre syndrome. And Guillain-Barre syndrome can be confused because they'll also describe it as something called acute demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy, or AIDP. Now there's a classic triad with Miller-Fisher, and this is what you have to look out for on the test. It's rapid onset ophthalmoplegia, ataxia, and areflexia. It's rapid onset ophthalmoplegia, ataxia, and areflexia. So if you have those three things, and in addition to that, you also have a bilateral Bell's palsy, definitely think Miller-Fisser syndrome because it can affect other cranial nerves too. Now the high yield antibody associated with Miller-Fisser syndrome is the anti-GQ1B antibody. It's an antibody to the ganglioside and peripheral nerves. And this makes a lot of sense because remember that Bell's palsy is a peripheral nerve problem. It's a problem where you're getting an autoimmune attack for some reason on your cranial nerve 7. So these anti-GQ1B antibodies are actually antibodies directed to the ganglioside in the peripheral nerves, probably in the myelin sheath. And so the mechanism that Miller-Fisher syndrome causes pathology is through immune-mediated molecular mimicry. Okay, so just going back, because I know we just said a lot, Bell's palsy is the most common type of peripheral facial palsy. And it's classically unilateral and acute onset. When you have a bilateral Bell's palsy, the first thing you should be thinking about is Lyme disease. And the way that you could identify that on a test is by looking at other symptoms that are associated with the three stages of Lyme disease. The three other high-yield causes of bilateral uh, Bell's palsy are sarcoid, HIV, and Miller-Fisser syndrome, which is a variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome. And if it's Miller-Fisher, look out for the triad of rapid-onset ophthalmoplegia, ataxia, and areflexia. Okay, the next cause of a peripheral uh, cranial nerve 7 problem would be herpes zoster, also known as Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. And this is unilateral and is caused by the varicella zoster virus, or uh, VZV. And there's two defining features that if you could find these two features on a test, it probably is herpes zoster, or Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. The first one is painful erythematous vesicular rash on the auditory canal or the auricle, which is like the ear. The second thing is an ipsilateral facial paralysis, which shows you cranial nerve 7 involvement. So one more time, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. There's two features, painful erythematous vesicular rash on the auditory canal or the auricle. And the second one is the ipsilateral facial paralysis, which is the cranial nerve 7 involvement. 
And because cranial nerve 7 is actually close to cranial nerve 8, it can spread to cranial nerve 8. And remember, cranial nerve 8 has two components. It has the vestibular nerve and the cochlear nerve. So it's called the vestibulocochlear nerve. The vestibular portion controls things like balance. It can give you things like vertigo or an inability to stand up straight. And the cochlear portion controls your ears or, or how well you could hear. So it could spread to cranial nerve 8. Now, high yield distinction here. Herpes simplex virus 1 is known as human herpes virus 1, or HHV. This is the thing that causes Bell's palsy. So when you think of hum uh, herpes simplex virus 1, which causes Bell's palsy, this can also present with vesicular lesions, but it's most likely going to be in the oral mucosa. It's not going to be on the ears. When they're on the ears, we're actually very much going to be concerned with a varicella zoster virus, which is in the human herpes family. However, it's the third virus in that family. Okay, so that was herpes zoster, which causes Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. The next one would be meningitis. In a meningitis patient, you're going to get fever. You're going to get neck stiffness, which is called nuchal rigidity, and you're going to get a headache. And because it's kind of affecting the leptomeninges, it could affect any of the cranial nerves, and these include cranial nerve 7. So what would I know for meningitis? I would know the most common pathogens for each age group. There's a great table in first aid titled Common Causes of Meningitis. I'll say that one more time. There's a table in first aid called Common Causes of Meningitis, and it lists out all the different age groups, and it lists out the most common pathogens for these age groups. These do get tested on step one. Now, I would know the treatments associated with each cause. So in general, this is like a rule of thumb that you could use. Generally, the treatment for meningitis is going to be vancomycin and a third-generation cephalosporin. Now, you add ampicillin for patients that are greater than 50 and for patients that are immunocompromised. And this is because ampicillin covers for listeria. Okay, so meningitis, you have this fever, neck stiffness, and headache. It can be associated with cranial nerve neuropathies. Know the most common pathogens for each age group and also know the most common treatments for each age group. But as a general rule of thumb, vancomycin and a third generation cephalosporin will always serve you right on the test. And add ampicillin if you're greater than 50 and immunocompromised for listeria coverage. Okay, the next cause would be a brainstem lesion or a stroke. Now, when you have a brainstem lesion or a stroke, there's going to be other cranial nerves involved. Cranial nerve 7 will not be the only one. Because remember the rule of fours. If you affect one part of the brainstem, you're not going to be isolating it to one cranial nerve. So, and another way to think about this would be if you have symptoms below the neck, meaning if you have deficits in your arm, deficits in your leg, basically any symptoms below the neck, this cannot be an isolated cranial nerve problem. This is a problem having to do with something higher up in the brain. Now, this is a peripheral lesion because the facial nucleus is in the pons, and the pons is in the brainstem. So if you have a brainstem lesion, you're affecting the facial nucleus, and the facial nucleus is basically the start of the lower motor neuron. Okay, so what have we covered so far? We talked about um, Bell's palsy, most common cause of unilateral acute onset peripheral palsy. Then we talked about the bilateral causes, which would be Lyme disease, sarcoid, HIV, and Miller-Fisher. We talked about herpes zoster, which is like Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. And basically, you're going to get an ear rash in addition to cranial nerve 7 involvement. We talked about meningitis, where you're going to have the fever, neck stiffness, and headache. And just we talked about stroke or brainstem lesion, where you're going to have multiple cranial nerves involved, 
and you're probably going to have symptoms below the neck, such as limb deficits. Now, what to do if you expect or suspect a central problem? Now, remember, a central problem involves the upper motor neuron, which goes from the motor cortex to the facial nucleus. And this is the one that is forehead sparing. In other words, the patient can still wrinkle their forehead. You can still see the wrinkles in the forehead. If you suspect this, I mean, if this is like a physical exam finding that is described in the question stem, they could still wrinkle their forehead. What you do is you get brain imaging. And you get the brain imaging because you're looking for ischemia, which would be a stroke, or you're looking for a tumor, which can be compressing the upper motor neuron causing these problems. Okay, so in summary, uh, this is really the end of the episode, but this is the high yield summary that you should take home. Peripheral lesion is the same thing as saying a lower motor neuron lesion, and you have upper and lower facial nucleus problems. A central lesion is the same thing as saying an upper motor neuron lesion, and you only get lower facial nucleus problems. In other words, you get forehead sparing. You're still able to wrinkle the forehead. If there's no other problems described, it's only a peripheral cranial nerve 7 lesion, it's likely Bell's palsy, which is associated with hum uh, herpes simplex virus 1. If you have some ear vesicles, some erythematous ear vesicles, in addition to the cranial nerve 7 palsy, it's herpes zoster oticus, which is uh, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which is a uh, varicella zoster virus. If it's bilateral, the first thing you suspect is Lyme disease. Lyme disease is spread by Borrelia, which is a spirochete, and it's by the Ixodes tick vector. Other things you consider, sarcoid, HIV, and Ramsey-Hunt. If you have fever, neck stiffness, and headache, in addition to the facial weakness, think meningitis. If you have multiple cranial nerves and you have symptoms below the neck, such as hand weakness or foot weakness, it's probably a brainstem lesion or a stroke somewhere. And if it's forehead sparing, you have to consider a tumor or a stroke, and your first bet should be to get brain imaging. All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I know this framework was a lot, but really, facial weakness is something that comes up a lot on exams, and it's really great to have an algorithm to run through in your head that you could uh, put together on test day to really get to the right answer every time. So thank you so much for listening, and I really hope you found this useful.